following program is produced by the Align in the Sound team. If you like what you hear, please stick around at the end of the show. To find out more, contact us and contribute towards a positive future. And that was It Isn't Nice by Malvina Reynolds. And if you've been following Extinction Rebellion on Facebook, you will know they did their own version of that show. That was um, quite an amazing version of It Isn't Nice that you can go and listen to on the Extinction Rebellion Facebook page. And they've put their own words to that, that match up with the protest, which was uh, quite wonderful to listen to and gives you a good chuckle. Anyway, we'd love to welcome to the show this morning, Violet Coco and Andy George from Extinction Rebellion ACT are going to be giving us a follow-up chat about what happened at the Parliament House protest and then what happened afterwards. So welcome to the show, Violet and Andy. It's so good to have you back with us. Oh, it's so good to be back. Thank you for having us. No, you're welcome. And I understand, Violet, you've just got out of Alexander McConaughey just a couple of days ago, right? Yeah, we're making yeah, a habit of this. That's, that's right. Yeah. Have they got a regular room there for you now? <laughs> no, not a regular room, not even pillows, but um, no, it's, uh, it was quite an experience. It was my first time um, with the gen- in general pop and, and like with the other ladies there. And um, yeah, I, I'm really keen to talk about what I experienced and, and um, yeah. Mm, Violet, if you could move a bit closer to the microphone, that would be great. Oh, yeah, sorry. Perfect. <laughs> it's a bit different not being in the studio with you. How are you surviving lockdown? Yes, well, we're just thrilled that we can keep broadcasting, you know, as, as essential yeah. media, or we have a dispensation to do that. And it just it means that we can keep a platform open for people like yourselves, because I know that, you know, the mainstream media obviously has their biases and we have ours, and we want to make oh. sure that everybody's voice has a chance to be heard, especially um, when the sources are limited during lockdown. Yeah, we really appreciate that. And I'm sure everybody listening really appreciates that as well, being able to stay connected. Yes, and it is great because we, we you know, have been able to cover topics that I feel are really ve- relevant to have an alternative platform to discuss them, not just listening to you know ABC and mainstream. So um, I know that probably everybody listening today or listening on the replay later knows who you are and, and knows what happened. But if you could give us a little bit of um, a synopsis, just in case anyone was under a COVID rock for a while, is just crawling out now and thinks, okay, protest. Yeah, I know they do protest, but what, what, what was so big about this one? Yeah, well, it all started with um, the federal court ruling um, and Susan Lay's duty of care do you want to talk about that, Andy? You've got your hand up. He's like a, like a kid at school. He's good at him. Yeah, I love it. Cause, and just so our listeners know that Andy and Violet are sharing a line here, so you'll hear some toing and froing. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so I guess, uh, well, it started with... Andy, uh, again, uh, you guys are going to have to do a bit of um, bit of bluegrass microphone action and just whoever's talking, move closer to the mic, I think. Is that is that better? A little bit, yeah. yeah. Yep. And maybe yeah. speak up. Okay, so... Um, it started both with the, the federal court ruling for the duty of care um, to the environment minister that, that said um, that she had the duty of care to stop, climate, stop the harm to children due to climate and CO2 emissions. This is and Susan Lay, right? This is Susan yeah, Lay, yeah. yes. And then also alongside that was, you know, we are in, as the IPCC says, code red, uh, everyone sort of, Many people are very aware of this and still not much was happening. So we came to Canberra uh, with a plan uh, of, of disruption, 
non-compliance and escalation because, you know, it's, it's desperate. We need to act as radical and non-violent as we can. So a bunch of people came to Canberra uh, because that was when the politicians were sitting uh, at the start of August, and we did a... And, a... and surprisingly, like, a bunch of people obviously didn't come as well. So we were planning, you know, to have a rebellion here of, of quite a few hundred people, but unfortunately with COVID, we have to respect the health advice, and so it ended up being about 40 people... Um, all together who sort of participated in this round of actions where when we normally go into a week of rebellion, it would be hundreds or thousands. And so it's one of the most surprising things about this was um, obviously how impactful we were able to be with such smaller numbers because we were willing to really um, be, be brave and courageous. And and ironically, the, the idea was that we... Um uh, were willing to face the consequences of the actions, which meant we were prepared to go to prison if necessary. And so we started with a, with something on the Tuesday, uh, the 4th maybe, outside of APIA, which is a fossil fuel lobby, Australian petroleum production exploration here in Canberra. So uh, we set up two tripods on the street. Um, people, Violet was one of the people who climbed up there. So, for, yeah, it's just like a seven-metre-high structure, this is one of my bugbears of activism is that a lot of it includes heights and I'm terrified of heights. <laughs> so here I was, it was a windy day and I had to climb up this single line and like float around for a few hours in the wind um, to get a point across that, yeah, that Susan Lee had a duty of care and to try and talk to normal Canberrans about it as well. Um, so there were five, five arrests that day caused a lot of peak hour disruption to Canberra, highlighted the, 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 the role that the fossil fuel lobby is playing in corrupting our government and our right to a future. And then uh, the next day, uh, we went to the Department of Environment itself and had a rally outside. And um, then in the afternoon, with some school children there holding the banners that said, we refuse to be the last generation. And then, um, now, I, I just want to say I was so surprised, um, well, I guess I wasn't surprised, but I was really struck with how articulate and how passionate these young people were. They were there in their school uniforms and they were so outraged at, that they had to be there and beg for a future and to this government that they had no control over picking, they don't get to vote. And, and they had to be there to beg for a future and, and just to hear the impassioned pleas for, for someone to care was really, it was a really powerful day to actually be, be there, yeah. And what sort of age range were these kids? I think like late high school range, so 15 to 17. And there's an article in the Canberra Times uh, by Savannah, who's, who's an XR member who's is in year 12, and it's really powerful. She's talking to Scott Morrison directly as a fellow Christian. So I'd encourage people to hear her words there. Mm. Um, th that's amazing just to see that. And it, what saddens me greatly, of course, is that this is this impassioned begging, as you're saying, and, and in some cases it's criminalised. You know? just, it just astounds me that you can be asking for something as important as this and it can be considered a criminal act. Yeah, well, I think one of the powerful things um, that happened that day was um, Dr. Nick Abel, who's a climate scientist, worked for the CSIRO, um, did sort of 
spill a bunch of red paint in symbolic of, of the blood that's being spilt of our children over the sign. And so at least the kids do get to see that somebody does care. And, um, and he actually, the courts gave him a no conviction for that, no penalty. So, um, you know, it's really powerful that even though obviously the people who are criminals are not being um, criminalised, there is also some movement towards understanding in the courts that this is actually the appropriate response right now and, um, and the decriminalisation of protesting, which is really powerful. What an ama- like, strange and amazing time to, to be involved. Mm. And I think this, you'll be probably getting into this shortly, but the, the number of you that um, were on remand and that most of you, um, other than yourself, Ida, who did spend some time in Alexander McConaughey Centre, most of the people received very small fines. Um, so that there's, there seems to be at least some understanding and sympathy um, from the court system. And I'm hoping as we progress, you know, we're going to have all of our um, law and enforcement services are probably going to be realising that you're making a very valid point and it's going to be harder and harder to get them to take action against you. Well, yeah, that's that's correct. And, and I guess I will say that me being in Alexander McConaughey was actually part of the protest. Um, the, the judge offered me uh, bail and I asked the court to acknowledge the criminality of the Australian government or I would not comply with their system and so didn't, ask for, didn't end up asking for bail, which means that that is what held me on remand. So it wasn't the courts that held me on remand. It was a continuation of my protest and I was on freedom strike, like you go on hunger strike. Mm. It was a... It was a, a a process of saying, you know, like, this is how bad this is, that I'm willing to sacrifice my freedom. And I'm, and it's something that's going to be necessary moving forward for everybody to be brave enough to, to engage in protests to the point where, um, where we are, protesters are held on remand. And, and that's um, because it's that serious. I and mean, then we all know that billions of people are going to die if we don't engage in the climate emergency. This is probably one of the most um, important challenges that humans have faced ever in history. Mm. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's going to require courage and strength to move forward. Mm. What disturbs me is I, I think you guys know that I used to live in Canada for a long time and they're, they're having a terrible bushfire season there right now. Um, they've lost two towns, very similar to Cabago situation where the towns were raised to the ground. And last night I just saw an evacuation order for another town that uh, I don't know if the town's made it through. I haven't checked in this morning. But um, we're not hearing that reported here. Like that's, that's a country that's not been in drought, that doesn't have the extreme heat, years and years of extreme heat drying out the landscape. That's a country that's come out of a cold and a wet season that's burning like that. So, you know, you, you, see, you see very little of that on our news uh, discussing what's happening over there, which is very similar to what we experienced in the 2019-2020 bushfires. Yeah, that is terrifying and... The other recent climate news is that um, Greenland has—they've recorded rainfall. For yes, the first yeah, in the time. Arctic Circle. And they don't even have gauges to measure rain because it doesn't rain there. And so, it's—it's it's just it's so terrifying. Like we are at 1.1, 1.2 degrees of global average warming, and we are on track for so much. Like I can't 
fathom how dis- it's. I mean, it's, it's, this is why uh, Professor Will Steffen told us we're heading for hell on earth because, like, that's what it'll be. We've we've created a very angry was. Uh, we've disturbed the hornet's nest, and it's just scary to think how much worse it will get because it's already terrible. Well, every, yeah. every year is a disaster that's you know, in the record books for the greatest disaster ever. You know, it's and it, they're not very far apart. These disasters we're talking two to three months in some cases if we consider both hemispheres. Yeah, and and as you you might know, the IPC the recent IPCC report came out, and that came out the night before my action, which um, was the final action of our strip, which was the one that sort of made got really far. I had no idea how far it had gone, obviously, for a few days where I lit the pram on fire at the front of Parliament House. But that was straight after the IPCC report that came out that painted a very stark picture for Australia and the fact that we are already at 1.4 degrees of warming here, um, which, you know, blows out our targets of limiting warming to 1.5 out of the water. You know, there's just no chance of that. Now, speaking of the pram, because I know that's probably the iconic image that most people have taken away from that protest. And, you know, I've, I've sort of been reading responses and having discussions with people about that. And it seems to be very mixed. Like you've got some tremendous support for that and, and the symbol and the message that that sent. And then you've got other people who are in environmental activism who felt that um, that message didn't get conveyed as it was intended and actually became the subject of a lot of bickering amongst climate activists and supporters. So, um, you know, they're saying, oh, but you're burning plastic. I'm like, I think that's the point, right? Um, anyway, yeah. so do you have any um, an opinion or feedback about that? Like how's, I mean, and I've actually, actually seen this copycat uh, prams being burnt in other protests across, um, across the world. So I think it's definitely had a positive impact in a lot of ways. You know, you've got, mm. now that's the symbol. But um, how, how's, how's that worked out for you, you know, that, that particular incident? Because I imagine there's been a lot of comments around that. Yeah, well, um, as you can imagine, I'm only just catching up mm. on a lot of that over the last 24 hours. Um, and, you know, when always when doing these kind of actions, it's sort of, I'm very apologetic. Um, you know, you never want to make things worse. Um, sometimes when I drive to the shops to pick up my groceries, I cry for the future generations. Um, that the, for that, you know, we're all sort of emitting things here and there, and you just can't focus on that individual response too much, especially while you're trying to be effective and get a message across. Um, and uh, I suppose the issue is that unless we're managed to be effective, it, you know, there is no future anyway to save. And so um, I think that I'm hoping, I'm hoping, as we all hope, that these actions um, do more good than harm in the mm. long run. Andy's got his hand yeah, up again. Yeah. Go for it, Andy. <laughs> I would just like to point out that um, the response... Uh, within the movement has been, uh, I mean, it, within Extinction Rebellion has been very, very supportive, very, like, amazing. Basically, we, we've we uh, inspired a lot of people. We've, we've, there were some assemblies held uh, the weekend after the action and people were just like, this is amazing, like, because uh, our sign-ups went sort of through the roof and obviously... Um, there was like about six cartoons around the country, massive news coverage. It became the image of the the Code Red IPCC report. Um, and um, 
So as much as people, I think that's actually what a good protest does is create a conversation. And it's, to me, it's the, the most symbolic thing and, and a powerful thing really to show that this is what it means. It means prams burning. It, it means the future is very, it's, it's burning down. Um, and it's scary to, to, to see it like that. Um, but it's, it's, it's really <laughs> well, it's, it's, it really is. As I said, it's the iconic image now. And I know that depending on people's personal perception, it might have different messages for individual people. But overall, the message is incredibly impactful. And I think last time you were both on the show with us, you talked to us about what led you, uh, what led you to doing acts of civil disobedience. It wasn't your first choice. It's not like you're out there wanting to be anarchists. You know, there was a whole process you sort of told us about that, that um, led you to determine that civil disobedience was probably the only thing that was going to get any reaction. Yeah, I mean, Andy and I have both engaged in many different types of trying to change things um, before obviously engaging in civil disobedience. Um, it's not it's not fun. I mean, you've played before this uh, interview, It Isn't Nice by Melvina Reynolds and you know it isn't nice to get arrested it isn't nice to go to prison so obviously you only you know get to these tactics when you've tried everything else and the social science is um, that it is the most effective way to change world politics as Christina Figuarez who's the who's the United Nations um, Secretary General for UNFCC and and she says it's not only a moral choice it's the most powerful way of shaping world politics and also, if you prefer David Attenborough's quote, he says that we cannot be radical enough. But also, Extinction Rebellion is based on, you know, social movements throughout history who've managed to make effective and fast change, like the civil rights movements, like the Gandhian independence movements, like the suffragettes movement, um, the gay rights movement. And so we're really, civil disobedience is building off the shoulders of, of the giants who've come before us, who've given us the safe world that we have in, to be having this open conversation here today as women and um, and all those wonderful things. So, yeah, it is um, it is really powerful and, and we are calling everyone and saying this is the time to engage and, and um, specifically the next time is in October where we're going to be claiming the streets again um, in a movement called Reclaim Our Future, which is an umbrella umbrella movement um, of all different types, not just Extinction Rebellion, who are really calling and saying this is the this is our chance to, to make a change through this really powerful uh, form of, it's called direct democracy, civil disobedience. Well, I guess it's also getting people... Um to change the way they look at something. You know, like you look, go back to what, 1947 and Rosa Parks, you know, refusing to stand and move to the back of the bus. I mean, that was against the law in, in her state and in the US in that year. And, you know, people were horrified that she would dare to do such a thing. We're horrified. controversial. Yes. And we're oh. horrified now that she would even, that would even be required. So yeah. it took, I think, from that particular incident she was arrested she was removed from the bus by police she was taken away as you were violet and um, charged and it took a year though from that action for people to start building momentum and i think a year later the um, the laws were changed so that um that segregation wasn't happening on the buses exactly yeah the montgomery bus boycott was was, a, was the first campaign that thrust martin luther king jr into the 
um, reluctant position of, of being a civil rights leader there in Montgomery. And that's a good point, you know, things do take a while um, and, and, and history views things differently, but we are at such a, the, the terrible thing uh, is that the climate crisis escalates, it gets worse every day, it's not a static... Yeah, we won't have any history to look back on if we don't do something, right? Right, totally. So that, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just, I'm, I'm so proud of you guys for doing what you do, but it's also a point where we haven't quite reached the tipping point yet of enough people um, who are going to step out and take action. Now, we've got a situation, of course, with COVID that makes it very difficult to do civil bi- disobedience and to do active protests. Like, how, how are you guys navigating that right now with the restrictions on, you know, being out in public? Yeah, well, I think it, it rolls back to the PhD article that Roger Hallam wrote on common sense for the 21st century, which is, you know, the more radical you're willing to be, the less people you need. I mentioned that this round of actions, we call them waves, we do things in waves. And this wave of action, um, you know, was supposed to be much, much bigger than what it was. But the more, but because it was smaller, we need, we mobilized with much more ferocity and much more creativity and much more desperation um, to be heard. And that is, um, I think that was key to the creativity that ended up breaching it out of our little bubble. And, um, and so when we talk about October and reclaim our future, you know, we've already had hundreds of people say, I'm coming, I'm coming, and I'm so inspired and I'm coming. And so you have to remember too that throughout history, you know, die-ins, people have turned up for a die-in and that's turned into great long days of, of rebellion um, spontaneously. And so you never know which day and which moment and which protest mm. will be the one that shifts the ground underneath us and makes us, um, puts us in a, a better place to be able to deal with um, the emergency that we face mm. and, um, and gets us our citizens assembly, which is really what we're aiming for at the end of the day is mm. understanding that democracy as we know it is broken and that we need a better form of democracy to deal with this issue. We just can't keep crying and, and pleading to the same people who, um, who aren't listening, who are, are, you know, only interested in their own self um, accumulation of wealth. You know, as we said last time, our deputy prime minister said, "The only thing I'm certain about 2050 is I'll be dead." So yeah. he doesn't care about what happens. To doesn't even care people. about his own family. Clearly, he his doesn't own care children. about his own family, mm. his own children. No, he only cares about his own economic you know, growth and resource accumulation in his lifetime and then after that young people be damned. So we know that our politicians, uh, our politics is broken, even though there are a lot of people who are in politics and really trying um, who give a damn, they're just being blocked by the rest Mm. of the selfishness. So, Well, this is um, what I'm hoping, that in the next federal election we might get a few more green seats because we've got some awesome candidates that we just might be able to get some different voices in there that can swing the balance of power. Yeah, that would be that would be fantastic. But I, as I said, I really do believe and, and I'm willing to risk my freedom on um, the need for a citizens' assembly, which is um, deliberative democracy. It's, it's mm. random people coming together yeah. um, and, and like jury duty and just taking the time to look at the science and be advised by it and then come out with a fair and reasonable response. We've held 
12 in Australia so far and many around the world in really contentious issues like the one in Ireland um, on the abortion mm, debate yeah. and just um, I really think that that you know that's what we need right now and that's what we should be calling out for collectively yeah, I guess it really depends, that sort of thing, on the receptivity of the politicians again. Um, like the one in South Australia to do with the nuclear waste dump went absolutely said, no, we don't want nuclear waste dump, and then the government just ignored that one. So in Ireland it was very successful, and, and I, I guess they must have had more political buy-in over there or something. But Yeah, yeah it's interesting. So... Even that is a little bit dependent on the politicians. What can we do? Well, are we going to go to the news? Oh, um, that's a good question, Scotty. Yeah. Um, so we'll a question for later. That's a question for later, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, we, unfortunately, we, we have to do a 10 o'clock news break, guys, so you're just going to have to put up and listen to a little bit of... Yeah, we've got uh, another minute left. <laughs> a, a, a bit of news for a couple minutes before we come back and answer some of the bigger questions. Yeah. Uh, but do you want to just reframe that question, Scotty, so yeah, they've got yeah, it in their mind? Yeah, because we've only got a minute left, why don't you tell us what the demands are of XR? We, we've, uh, we've covered one of them. Okay, well, they're very straightforward. Um, you could even put them like this, face up, face up to the truth, tell the truth, declare a climate and ecological emergency and work with other institutions like we're seeing with COVID. It's all over the news. Um, act now, pull your finger out. There's no point waiting for 30 years. That's just an excuse for delay. We have to get to zero emissions as fast as we can. And lastly, to do this in a fair way and get past the corruption of our current political system, we demand a citizens' assembly that is binding, that doesn't just get to give advice, but gets to, um, mm. that advice has to be followed. So those, those are the three. Mm. Yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah. So we will unpack that. You're listening to Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM. Uh, behind the lines, our guests are Violet Coco and... Andy George. From Extinction Rebellion. From Extinction ACT. Rebellion. So we'll be Here's back with our guests yep. in just a few minutes. Good morning, I'm Brady Evans. Victoria has recorded 79 new locally acquired COVID-19 cases. 53 are linked to known outbreaks with the source of the remaining 26 under investigation. It brings the total number of active cases in Victoria to 660, with about 1 in 10 infections based in the regional town of Shepparton. Around a quarter of the town is believed to be self-isolating, forcing the closure of food distributors, supermarkets and pharmacies due to staff shortages. US President Joe Biden has vowed the United States will hunt down those responsible for twin explosions at the Kabul airport in Afghanistan. He has asked the Pentagon to develop plans to strike back at them. Mr Biden spoke hours after the blast that killed at least 13 American troops and scores of civilians, the worst day of casualties for US forces there in a decade. ISIS-K, an affiliate of militants who previously battled US forces in Syria and Iraq, has claimed responsibility for the attack. President Biden says the US will retaliate. To those who carried out this attack, as well as anyone who wishes America harm, know this. We will not forgive. We will not forget. We will hunt you down and make you pay. I will defend our interests and our people with every measure at my command. 
Prime Minister Scott Morrison has taken to social media condemning the Kabul attacks and confirming that no Australian personnel were killed in the explosions. Defence Minister Peter Dutton confirmed Australian forces departed Kabul after the decision to complete a final airlift yesterday. I'm just so grateful that they're now safe. The intelligence was clear to us that if we uh, allowed our soldiers to stay on uh, with the near certainty of terrorist attacks, then we would lose further Australian lives. Thousands of truck drivers around the country have gone on strike after pay negotiations with their employer, Toll Holdings, broke down. Up to 7,000 truckies are staging a 24-hour strike, which could affect the nation's food and fuel supplies. The Transport Workers' Union has accused Toll of scrapping overtime entitlements and engaging outside drivers in a bid to compete with other global firms. Toll has accused the TWU of refusing to compromise during negotiations. President of Toll's Global Express, Alan Beecham, told the ABC contingency plans have been put into place to ensure the strike causes minimal disruption. As one of the uh, largest providers across the country, we have to manage um, bushfires, floods. And so let me assure you that um, we have been planning for this event. We didn't want it to happen. And we will leave no stone unturned today to actually ensure that we put parcels on the doorsteps and groceries on the shelves of the public. Turning to sport, Football Australia intends to keep pushing for the Socceroos to play World Cup qualifiers on home soil in October and November. Australia's strict quarantine laws have forced next week's home tie against China to be moved overseas, with FA confirming the match will be played in Qatar. Doha's Khalifa International Stadium will be the venue for the start of Australia's next step towards the 2022 World Cup, with the match to be played next Friday morning. FA Chief Executive James Johnson says it is still the plan to have the Socceroos play matches against Oman and Saudi Arabia in Australia. National Radio News, produced by Charles Sturt University, the Community Radio Network, and supported by the Community Broadcasting Foundation. And we're back. We do apologise for having to do that uh, news break right in the middle of a really interesting discussion there. But uh, we do have our wonderful guests back on the phone here, Violet Coco and Andy George. Welcome back to the conversation. Thanks so much. Thanks for having us. So, Scotty, we had a question before the break there that we were going to unpack over that little yeah, news yeah. disruption. Yeah, so we were talking about the uh, the the citizens' assemblies, um, which we'll probably unpack in a bit of detail now, but um, yeah, yeah, I was wondering because the the citizens' assemblies are a bit dependent on the politicians, who in this country the ruling party is absolutely dead against doing anything to disturb the status quo and actually actively working to bring the climate catastrophe on through their Adani mine and fracking all over the place and doing all their wonderful stuff. Um, so we're not likely to get a really good reception from these clans, especially if they're re-elected. Um, what can the community do to start bringing it around? Because uh, like the old saying goes, if you want a politician to lead, you've got to form a parade and they'll automatically make their way to the front. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, yeah, I would just say that... Um First of all, I hear that there's a lot of momentum and movement for, you know, uh, the ICAC, for example, for, for us uh, having more accountability and transparency in Parliament, which is obviously a very important first step. But the other thing is that 
So you mentioned before the citizens' assemblies in Ireland that was successful in South Australia. They came up with recommendations that were ignored, and this is always going to be an issue with a citizens' assembly. So I, my understanding from the one in Ireland was that it was something like seventy-five percent citizens selected uh, through sortition, which is you know random and therefore representative selection, and then so they're not self-selecting, right? No, not self-selecting, which is how you get past the current issues with with our uh, political system. But the, the other 25% were elected members. And so what I understand is that assembly in particular had, um, you know, that level of community uh, randomness, people f- from all different walks of life, plus people who were already in the political system. So they the buy-in was really high. And in terms of getting an assembly into place, well, that's why we're in a rebellion, you know. Rebellions are times when we we aim to accrue as much power and force the government to act in the way that we want, you know. We shut down parliament, we shut down the capital cities until they reach the demand, which is a binding citizens' assembly. You know, in moments of rebellion, things change dramatically, and that's what we really need, is a dramatic change where... Uh, a citizens' assembly can act, uh, can be informed by the science on the situation, and those those recommendations need to be binding. Yeah, yeah. So, so what what is a citizens' assembly? Let Let's get down and actually explore what this concept is. Uh, yeah. So as we already said, it sort of works like jury duty. So it's um, it's what the Greeks first imagined when they came up with democracy. It's where the term roped in comes from because they used to just rope people in, but um, in the was in the square. But uh, as, as Andy mentioned, it's done by sortition now. So it's about getting a representative selection of the population. That means 2% men, 2% women, um, people representative who have different backgrounds in queer and people of colour and um, different demographics of pay and um, and then they're led through so they're advised by the science they're led through um, sort of uh, training on bias Um, they are then um, you know broken up into small groups and uh, facilitated through a process of deliberation so actually taking the time to think about what they've heard, to process it, to yeah, deliberate, and then come back with fair and reasonable responses. And, and that process goes back and forward for a little bit. There's some great um, content out there, TED Talks and all kinds of things on, on how they work. And I would recommend that people do look them up because it, it's really inspiring to think about a way that we can run democracy that isn't this two-party system where people are just trying to win over each other because they have this career of politics to, to take care of, rather than people who are actually genuinely invested in having a society that is run well because they live in it. It's not about serving themselves so that they can have a career. It's about serving their communities and themselves because that's the decisions that they make are what impacts them. Um, and and uh, some some great things about sortition, right? Is if you randomly select people that represent the constituents of Australia or of the ACT, just this very one fact, right? The one percent, the richest people who currently hold an, a disproportionate sway over our democracy, get one seat at the table. The rest of it will be 
all of the regular people in Teachers, society. nurses, you know, one of you, one of us. 18-year-old <laughs> people, all of this. So the decisions that they... So no, there's no one vested interest that's going to get more attention than the other. Exactly. Yeah, except the, the people in prison pointed out that if you have a criminal record, then uh, you don't get to do a jury. So maybe Andy and I won't be able to participate. <laughs> but you might be able to help structure it, you know, right? And then help people learn how to get in touch with it and how to form form it and build it. And you know, yeah, I know you're good at educating people on how to um, <laughs> how to take action. So yeah. there's, there's always a role somewhere, right? Totally. Well, I mean, we're here trying to through civil disobedience, get it to happen. Um, and on on assemblies, so there's the Sortition Foundation, which is an international um, organisation that runs these assemblies. So they're non-government. Um, they put them together. Uh, there's also the New Democracy Group here in Australia. And what's really interesting is that I think it was last week, the week um, after I got out of remand in the AMC prison, there was an, uh, a Zoom here in ACT hosted by the Greens, and um, yes, I do. Was, I do remember that one. Yeah. Apparently, I wasn't there, but apparently there was a lot of talk about assemblies and the need for greater participatory democracy. Mm-hmm. And I think what people in the ACT, like, I think the idea that was kind of raised was like, if the ACT was to get an assembly, then you know you can lead by example, demonstrate how effective it is to the federal government, all these things. And w- the other really interesting point, right, is that we have people in politics who understand the science, know that the situation is bad, but can't act because of the, the traps of the political system. And so they could advocate for citizens' assemblies as well. And that's something that we really need to... Give, I think it's a way out for the politicians who recognise that the situation is insane and is broken. If they hand off some of their power to a citizens' assembly, it doesn't necessarily mean we do away with all of uh, the current political system, but, um, but basically it's a, it's a way that we can just get to the solutions we need because we have all the solutions. We know what we could do to heal the climate and... And many of those, if not all of them, will ultimately benefit our society as well in many ways as we work together uh, with a collective need for survival. Mm. So I'm just so excited for the day when we really start working on the, on the, on the solutions because right now the, the dissonance is so tragic in our society, particularly for young people that that see the headlines, they know they've been, in, they've been handed a broken world that's only going to fall apart more. Like, we have an obligation to give children and, and all of us hope through action, through healing the planet. It's just, it can't keep going on like this. And it will change, but we need that change to happen right away. Yeah, that's right. And it's going to create a hell of a lot of jobs, despite what the, the naysayers say. Um, and... Yeah, yeah. Just before we leave the uh, the citizens' assembly, it's it's really always worth pointing out that over in northern Syria, um, or northeastern Syria, anyway, the the citizens' assembly over seven years was put into practice as a permanent form of governments on the neighbourhood level, um, where they held sovereignty using a citizens' assembly, um, and. Each locality would then federate upwards to get larger jobs done, like the municipal services and that sort of thing. 
Um, That's fantastic, isn't that? It's just you hear stories. I, even I still hear stories every now and again of how they've worked throughout history and around the world. And it's just really exciting to try and I'm a, I studied philosophy as um, as my sort of area, and and just I think a lot of people don't realise that you can run society in different ways. They're very stuck in their own like this is the way it is, and this is the way it's always got to be. And then you hear about the different ways that we can engage the world around us and each other in fair and democratic ways, and it's it's so inspiring. It is. It is indeed. Mm. And you know my. You know, I guess my concern would be because any time the people come up with a great solution that empowers the people and, you know, makes the um, game board a little bit fairer for all parties, there seems to be an equal pushback from the powers that be to prevent that or to um, curtail it or to make it um, more challenging. So um, what have you found as far as, you know, the citizens' assemblies that have been successful and then the one Scotty mentioned where they didn't have any luck against nuclear waste? What can you do when the citizens' assemblies are being ignored? What's the, I mean, or we could go back to the idea of civil disobedience again, but um, what, what what can citizens' assemblies do if they're finding that they're not making any headroads? Oh, get cynical. Yeah, get cynical. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I would say it's it's a further platform for rebellion. Um, again, I said I I studied philosophy and and um, you know when you think and conceptualize the idea of what a government is for, a government is for protecting its people. And so when the government fails to protect its people, it's actually the people's absolute responsibility and responsibility and obligation to um, to right that wrong and to, to fix the government process for everybody. And um, and so and that often in, involves rebellion and, and more successfully it often involves non-violent rebellion, which mm-hmm. is what we engage in. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, I mean, obviously when um, democracy came about, I think it was Churchill that was like, um, you know, the best thing that's ever happened to democracy since and the worst thing or whatever, I can't remember the specific quote, but oh, basically... I think he said, democracy is the best form of government. We, oh, no, yeah. no, I've lost it too. Yeah. But basically the idea is that every system you ever have is going to be at that war, at war and play of corruption and, and working, right? You know, like the system that we have at the moment, there are good people and bad people in it who are always going to be fighting for the greater good or self-interest and we all have an obligation to be engaged in that struggle and in that and and to be present to the fact that that happens and make sure that each of us are putting a, a drop of sweat into making a be- the world a better place each day mm. yeah i think he said democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. So um, you go. what I'd love to get on to, because I know that time flies on this show really quickly, and I wanted to give you guys a chance to talk about some things you've got coming up. So I understand, Violet, um, you're going to be running some peaceful protest training. So people that have been wanting to get involved and aren't quite sure what to do. And, and what inspired me was last time you were on the show, you mentioned that um, a lot of the people involved in protesting now is that are disproportionately women and disproportionately older 
women and women who have never been activists prior, who are not, um, f you know, not people who've ever committed civil disobedience before and it's just pushed them to the limit of what they're seeing happening, the future that's being left to their children and grandchildren and they're saying enough. So there's probably other people out there that are considering the same thing and, and, and want to do it peacefully. So I understand that you're going to be running um, some training on that. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, basically it's, it's really important when you involve, engage in non-violent direct action that you um, do get the training to be able to de-escalate, to know um, your rights, um, to be involved uh, in a way that keeps everybody safe and keeps yourself safe. And so, um, and, and to be able to do it effectively, to look at what's happened throughout history and, and know um, what are the most powerful ways to engage. And so, um, yeah, this Sunday, uh, one till four, I'll be doing a mini nonviolent direct action training to just cover a few of that thing, myself and a few other amazing activists who have been training up over the last two years. And I think that it's really important, especially in this lockdown time, that we all take the time to skill up as much as possible. There'll be many more trainings, like how to represent yourself in court and all those kind of things um, throughout over the next few weeks, so that as soon as we do come out of lockdown, we can just make the most impactful and empowered bang we can on the streets. Non-violent bang, obviously, that we can on the streets. And so the, the best way to get involved with that is if you're a Facebook person, um, the XRACT Facebook page with, um, is a good place to go or Extinction Rebellion Australia. But also if you just go to our website, ozrebellion.earth, that's A-U-S, rebellion.earth, not .com or .au or anything, it's .earth. And if you sign up there, then you'll sign up to our emails and you'll get the local email to your area. So um, I know that you said that you have a few people um, in Australia, around the country, but also overseas who are engaged. And so there's also rebellion, global rebellion, um, extinction rebellions in 83 countries, which is one of the things that also make it really powerful mm. because um, it's not just citizens' assemblies that we're fighting for here in Australia, but we're actually aiming to fix democracy around the world. Mm. And so, um, yeah, if you're listening somewhere else, join the rebellion. You'll have a local group. And if you don't have a local group, there'll be somebody keen to help you start one. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, join us. Saturday, 3.30, I'll also be just talking about the prison experience. Um, we'll be talking about... Um, how to weaponize our privilege and what we did there and, and the kind of people that we met and um, and why why we engage in that sort of freedom strike and um, and then yeah following on training mm. so, yeah. that's wonderful because I imagine that's a, a barrier of fear for a lot of people that are concerned that if they um, participate in civil disobedience that they'll get arrested and then how that's going to impact other areas of their life and other choices they'll be able to make so I think clarifying that for a lot of people what they might expect in that situation would help for sure and so like you know when we say um, we had a team of 40 people engaging in civil disobedience uh, that week of that wave of action only eight of us were actually arrested so there's um, you know, there's many, many roles in the rebellion that don't involve actually getting arrested. And also many of the people who did get arrested walked away with no convictions. So, yeah, I believe um, like $20 fines or like very minimal. Yeah, very yeah. minimal. 
That's right. Yeah, and I, and I think you made a really important point there, which is about demystifying things, because prison, prison, the fear of prison is the fear of the unknown, really. And what's so powerful is, like, I've never been to prison before, and I spent a week in there, and uh, along with a bunch of other, like, there was seven of us in total who, who um, asked to be released to continue with our protest, and we weren't released, so, that, so we went into the prison. And, yeah, it's... Um, once, you know, the prison is, is one of the worst places to end up in society uh, if for most people's uh, measures and standards. But, and it's the biggest tool of repression that our government has. And we are in rebellion against this government because they're failing to protect all of us. They're failing all of the children of this country and the world. And so once, if you're willing to face that fear and go through and realize that it's actually very doable, that... Um, you know, it just never ceases to amaze me the irony and privilege of, of that some of us have. You know, like the food in the prison was reasonably pretty damn good, and it's a lot more food than most, like how many eight hundred million people in the world are hungry. Yeah. Or even in the ACT, those that are homeless now, right? Or the people in financial hardship because of the lockdown who don't have enough to feed their families. You know, it's. Oh. I feel so sorry for the people right now who really in that in that situation and and that's that's right like the worst that the government can do in repression is feed us and clothe us and put us in a in a cage and if we're willing to face that which is what the people who took part in these actions were willing to face then it just is incredible we did we did another action before um, the Parliament House one which was at the Department of Environment we we decided that, you know, they weren't listening, so we graffitied in their lobby. We people, two, two gentlemen glued their hands to the reception desk demanding to meet with the, um, the chief of, of the place and stuff like this. I poured tomato sauce all over myself and a bit of a... Yes, I did see the picture. If people are curious to know what that looks like, go to your Facebook page. There's some great pictures of Andy with the tomato sauce there. Yeah, and <laughs> all of that was came about because we we were willing to face the consequences of our actions and we went when we went in front of the magistrate we said you've got to drop these charges or and allow me to continue my protest and what the magistrate did for the first few days was uh, give us uh, uh, basically adjourned the matters but um, dropped the bail so which enabled us to continue and if people go into the situation with that fearlessness, I'm willing to go to prison, then you sort of call their, you force them to, to either repress us even further or to let us go. And that's what we really need in, in these times of, of fighting for justice and safety is to go day after day and face the consequences and to... Um, and the worst of it, you know, to get over that fear is really good. So on Saturday at 3.30, there'll be a bunch of us there, including, you know, 77-year-old retired scientist Nick, who I was in prison with, um, another gentleman from Newcastle, a 22-year-old Eric, Leslie, a 59-year-old woman, and Mark, the musician. And we'll demystify what prison is like, and it's, it's not the, the ideal place to end up. Nobody chooses to be there. We're there because we're in rebellion. Other people are there because of the hardships and, and, and tragic cycles of life. Drug war. Yeah. yeah. Drug war, yeah. I mean, that's it. A lot, a lot of the people that we, uh, you know, met in there, they were either addicted to drugs and should have been, and were asking for, actually, like, you know, when they said, come out, can you talk, please talk about how we actually want 
more care and help to remove ourselves from our addiction of drugs. They, they're asking for it, but all they're getting is, is being locked up. Mm. And the other side is, you know, what's only going to get worse with COVID and, and the economic issues is people who, yeah, are struggling to feed their family and then falling into doing things who are, that are... Yeah, more and more desperate, right? Yeah, that's right. And so it is a tragic system and just having that exposed to us as well um, was really powerful, really, really powerful and wanting to really be an advocate for that system as well and, and fixing that system. Mm-hmm. Um, after experiencing it, that yeah. leads me to we, we did have a, quite a few listener questions come in but I'd like to just touch on one of them because we don't have time for all of them unfortunately because uh, it is relevant to what we're just talking about so we've got a question come in from Downer here they haven't given us a name they just put their suburb and they asked uh, what did the prisoners think of your protest oh well this was very interesting you know we arrived and people were like it's the protesters we saw you on the news last night thought you would be coming in <laughs> Um, and, and I would say it was a bit of a microcosm of society at large. Uh, I was very, uh, I thought it was rather amusing when a fellow person on remand there said, look, I agree with your message, but I think you went about it the wrong way. Uh, but then we had other people who offered to join us next time and do burnouts at the protests and sort of <laughs> show us how it's done. Um, <laughs> and, and I was really struck, like, people were a bit... Um, you know, they're like, why did you end up in prison? Like, we'd give anything to not be in prison, and you guys sort of chose or, like, you know, are in here when you ultimately could have not done that and not been in here. But I was... Um, we, we had quite a few people who were interested in joining, uh, that's, that's for sure, and also people who said that, you know, it was, it was impressive that we were in there for doing something that we believed in, for taking this strong action. Yeah, that's what I had. You know, you, some people sort of being like, and especially because when we were protesting, there was no COVID in Canberra. Yes, and I did point and then, that out to our listeners in our post so they didn't criticise you for protesting. Yeah, and but then our first day in um, prison, that's when the, the um, COVID was exposed to be in Canberra. And so there were quite concerned that we were in there being like, you know, don't protest during, you know, COVID. But um, but then, yeah, I had women standing up and being like, these guys actually really care about the planet and they're trying to do something right. I had a woman who was an um, ex-protester for animal rights and she was like, no live exports. When you get out, make sure you say no live exports. <laughs> and so um, thanks, thanks to her for, for advocating for us. So yeah, it's it's a, a mix. It is a real mix. And um, but I think you know, after spending two weeks there, I, I made some really powerful friendships as well. And so that sort of helps moving forward. Is that um, you know there are people who are in there going to be in there for a very long time. And and I was sort of like, well, I'll see you back in October. Like, I'll be back. <laughs> so I said, did they have a room put aside for you there, Violet? Yeah, <laughs> I think yeah. Or at least your own coffee mug or something. My cellies were like, we'll save you a spot in our cottage. We want you to be in our cottage. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah, unfortunately, we've only got about a minute left. So um, is there anything you'd like to let our listeners know and how they can get in touch? I guess we've covered most of that just before we have to go um, off air. Yeah, I'll just remind people to go to ozrebellion.earth or to our Facebook page, Extinction Rebellion Australia, and that we're having that session Saturday 3.30 to find out about our prison experience and Sunday 1 till 4 is a mini training session 
And I, I guess I do want to end with a personal plea, which is that, you know, we really, nobody wants to be doing this. Um, I didn't wake up one morning and think, oh, you know, I'm going to be a um, nonviolent activist and send myself to prison. It's We're doing this because we absolutely have to and, and we're prioritizing it over our own personal lives and that is what requ- is required of everyone. And so... As much as we make it fun and and um, that we we do as much as we can to support each other, um, I think a lot of people go, I can't do this because of X and I can't do that because of Y. But the reality is that what we're facing is, um, you know, is the collapse of our habitable planet. And so thinking about what you are willing to sacrifice from your life to to um, to prevent that mm-hmm. and prevent that for all of our children. All right, this has been Behind the Lines. That was Violet Coco and Andy George. Thank you all. It's wonderful to have you on the show, guys, and we'll do a follow-up in a little while. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, really appreciate it. You have been listening to an episode of A Line in the Sound, the podcast made by Co-ops, Commons and Communities Canberra, Co-Canberra for short, the New Economy Network of Australia, or NINA, and radio behind the lines from Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM in Canberra, Australia. Co-Canberra is working towards a cooperative Commonwealth. Our work builds strong communities, extensive commons and a network of climate cooperatives. The New Economy Network of Australia is a network of individuals and organisations working to transform Australia's economic system so that achieving ecological health and social justice are the foundational principles and the primary objectives of the economic system. Behind the Lines has been running for well over 30 years on Canberra's oldest community radio station, 2XX. We do extended interviews with anyone who's trying to make the world a better place. All three are volunteer-run, so if you like what you heard on this episode, join us and become the media. To join up with the New Economy Network of Australia, sign up at neweconomy.org.au. To help out with Behind the Lines, or to help our editing team finish off a mountain of good Australian New Economy info, which includes editing training, contact us at behindthelines98.3 at gmail.com and see 2XXFM.org.au where you can subscribe, donate and volunteer to Australia's only alternative voice, Community Radio. If you're not in Canberra, there's definitely one near you. To help out with CoCanberra, contact us at info at cocanberra.org.au That's C-O-C-A-N-B-E-R-R-A dot org dot A-U or come along to our monthly meetups, which we share with Nina Canberra Regional Hub, where we explore any and all aspects of the new economy. Find out what we're up to at cocanberra.org.au. And finally, if you want to help fund me, Scotty, to go full-time with this and lots of other related work, look up LiberaPay, L-I-B-E-R-A-P-A-Y, and search for Community Supported Scotty. From there, you can find out about all my other projects and donate to help create a new, appropriate economy. Thanks.